You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. I have Laura Sanchez, uh, Assistant Professor of Medicinal Chemistry and, uh, I don't know if I could say this word, Pharmacognosy? Yep, that's right. Okay. I don't know what that is, but uh, you know, she has a courtesy appointment in chemistry at uh, University of Illinois in Chicago. We're going to talk about uh, biofilms and the metabolites of pathogenesis, so this should be like really interesting. So Laura, thanks for coming. Yes, thank you for having me. And actually, we updated our department name, the Pharmaceutical Science, um, okay. because people don't know what pharmacognosy meant. So you go. Well, what is it? What is pharmacognosy? So it's kind of the um, older word, and it basically is a fancy word for natural products. So it's the study of you know natural things from the environment. Okay, right, gotcha. So are you studying? Like, what are you particularly studying at the uh, you know in your research? Yeah, so my lab is actually, so we study a lot more than just biofilms. We're really interested um, in using analytical tools to really drill in to understand why uh, bacteria and cells use small molecules. So we know that they, you know, like bacteria, for instance, dedicate up to 25% of their genome to the production of these small molecules. And historically, a lot of them have had therapeutic relevance. So a lot of natural products encompass the antibiotics we take or their cancer drugs like Taxol. Uh, but we don't really know why they're made in the environment. And so my lab tries to use different kinds of tools to figure that out. So where are they being produced like in the context of a host microbe setting? Um, because we think we can better well, exploit their potential that way. All right, so some questions about bacteria. Um... You know, I know from doing a lot of interviews, human cells and animal cells, they give off exosomes or extracellular vesicles. Yeah. They use tunneling nanotubes, things like that. What do bacteria do? Do they, do they package up small molecules in some kind of membrane and send them out of their, out of their you know, body? Or like how do they That's release stuff into the environment? That's a great question. Uh, so I think there's some evidence to show that the compounds when they're in the cells look a little bit different than when they're excreted. So bacteria modify them basically right before they send them out into the environment in their like toxic forms or their like active forms, if you will. Um, But I don't think we actually know as much about how bacteria do this to my knowledge, like how they're actually packaged. 
Um, so one of the techniques my lab likes to use is called imaging mass spectrometry. Um, and it's basically a fancy way for us to see where these molecules are in relation to like a growing colony um, or like bacteria in a host organ. So as long as we can slice things really thin or dry them down really flat, we can actually measure over the entire sample and see where these metabolites are. So as far as we can tell, it kind of looks like they're just excreted as they are. So we're able to directly weigh them. I thought bacteria extend like a, I think there's like a pili or something. They, That's how they, they move get... around. Yeah. Oh. So like they could like use that to like pull themselves places, like across a little surface. So I, all right. So I guess some. Um... And then sometimes it's to like inject toxins and things into like a host cell. Oh, okay. So there is some direct contact with host cells. So the bacteria will extend like a finger or something. Yep. And that will what? Penetrate the cell wall of the recipient? Yep. Yep. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's how a lot of genetic code can get shared. Um, but as far as like the actual small molecules go, um, you know, a lot of times if you think about like a classic uh, experiment for how they discovered uh, penicillin, you know, mold penicillium was growing near a bacteria and you just see this zone of inhibition. So that means, you know, the bacteria and the fungi were never touching each other. The fungi was excreting an antibiotic to prevent the bacterium from growing. So I think in the case of small molecules on surfaces, I think they're just kind of excreted, or at least that's my understanding. What about uh, biofilm dynamics? What does that look like? Um, has that been studied? You know, how do cells set up a biofilm and how are they connecting and what do biofilms look like? Yeah, so I think of biofilms, um, so they're these kind of gnarly 3D structures that are composed of, you know, DNA that exists outside of the cell. Um, when a bacterium's in a biofilm state, it starts making a lot of exopolysaccharide, which is basically, you know, this like kind of gooey sugar units. Uh, and it also makes extracellular proteins. And all of that, basically, it's encased itself in an impenetrable sugar coat that like builds into this like large 3D structure. So it's hydrated. Um, like if you were to remove a biofilm out of water, eventually over time, it would just desiccate to flatness again. Um, but these things are just these large 3D structures made up of cells, proteins, DNA, and just like a extracellular sugar matrix. So it's really hard for antibiotics to pass through them. Um, and if they do get in, a lot of times they're pumped out. That's what some of those proteins do. Um, and then what we've done with some uh, other work is that we know that these biofilms, you know, when it's a single organism, I think they're relatively uniform, although that's a whole area of study. And when it's a multi-microbial biofilm, they organize themselves differently throughout. But all of these, I don't think there are many hard, fast rules because it's a really active area of study. That's crazy. Um, yeah, bacteria so are way really smart. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I believe it. Um, so biofilms are not 2D, they're actually 3D. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually, uh, we, have, we collaborate with Lars Dietrich from Columbia, uh, and his lab has really done a beautiful job of taking pictures of and really studying, you know, what this architecture looks like when they're just growing on a flat surface. Like, and what, like, they're trying to figure out, like, what all that means. Because they do form these, like, really beautiful patterns and, you know, I, I look at them and I think they look pretty, but I don't know, you know, our area of expertise is in the chemistry. We don't necessarily know, right. like, the physics of why they're forming this way. Well, uh, 
okay, so if you have a 3D biofilm, like what's in the middle? Are there bacteria in the middle or there's just proteins and matrix in the middle? And how do they get fed if so? Yeah, in the middle, I think there are cells that are thought to be somewhat dormant. So the, what we know about the biofilm cells is that they don't replicate as quickly. Um, so like if you had just like a free floating culture of bacteria, their doubling time would be, it would double much quicker than in the biofilm state. So I think the cells at the middle are like, they don't get as much nutrients. So I think they're a little more, they're considered to be a little more dormant. Okay. Is my understanding, but they can slough cells off and start the process and grow again. So, uh, all right. So you're studying the chemistry of what what's produced by biofilms or individual bacteria actors. Yeah. So what we're really interested in studying. So we again, we know bacteria have this. They ha- all have genetic capacity to produce molecules, and we know that they can live in a biofilm state. And a lot of people have invested, you know, a lot of research. Um, efforts, if you will, into finding biofilm inhibitors. Because if you, the one thing about a biofilm is in the biofilm state, it's a lot harder to treat with an antibiotic. So if you can get rid of biofilms, maybe you could treat hospital acquired infections better. Um, And so what I wanted to know was whether we could use the chemistry as kind of like a early warning detection system, Uh, because it's really easy, like these microbes have chemical signatures. And so we wanted to know if we could exploit that information Uh, at various points of the biofilm life cycle. And we did test a biofilm inhibitor that I had studied as a graduate student. And when all was said and done, it basically made the bacteria um, more infective. So it was more virulent, which is not a trait you're looking for if you're trying to clear an infection, Um, because we killed a bunch of moths a lot faster than if they were just infected, (laughs) even though they didn't have biofilms anymore. (laughs) It was, yeah, it's something triggered the bacteria to go into this hypervirulent state. So the, the stages of a biofilm are what, like attachment, growth, and detachment, or what, what are they? Yep, that's pretty much it. The, the free-floating bacteria would come, settle on a surface, and then start to grow up into a 3D structure, and then cells fall off and keep propagating the cycle. Um, and so when you treat it with a biofilm inhibitor, then the cells are dispersed rather than, you know, breaking off a chunk of a biofilm to grow another biofilm somewhere else. So it's a slightly mm. different like life cycle state. When a piece of a biofilm breaks off, does do the individual bacteria leave it or do they, is it literally a piece of the extracellular structure with bacteria embedded in it that breaks off and floats somewhere else? Yeah. So I think it's both. So there was actually, and I don't remember the paper reference, but there was a paper a while ago when they were studying cholera uh, in India that if you filtered water with a sari, like a, you know, a piece of cloth, uh, Mm -hmm. you could actually, the water was more, like less people got infected by water. So it's like that was Mm -hmm. filtering out these big biofilm chunks is like the best evidence we have to show that it's really the chunks floating around and the chunks are what are bad for you. Is there some kind of um, quorum sensing, like, you know, the growth phase, do they, you know, do certain species always tend to have the same shape and size before they break off or do things break off? Like, is the break off timed? Um... I'm not sure about that. That would be a question for a real microbiologist. <laughs> uh, so you're studying the chemistry of, uh, are you essentially sensing what's going on as a biofilm is growing and seeing for changes in the chemistry or like, what's yeah. your angle on it? Yeah, so we wanted to know whether the chemistry 
could tell us anything about the biofilm because the chemistry is really easy to measure. Um, and so we did this study where we treated a biofilm um, with a biofilm inhibitor and then measured the chemistry and the chemistry that came out was actually telling us that the biofilms, they had increased production of what we call siderophores. So that's what these microbes use to sequester iron from their environment or a host. Uh, and generally that, mean, that means the bacteria is more virulent. So it's like, again, more infective. Um, and so I was like, wow, that's not good. And that was really unexpected. Uh, and when we kept, you know, following this down the rabbit hole, it turned out we had indeed made everything worse. Um, but the chemistry was the first thing we measured and that's what it had pointed to. So I think the chemistry can really be used, you know, to gauge the system. Well, what does a biofilm inhibitor look like? You know, like, I, I'm picturing you like literally like slathering it onto a biofilm, but I know that's not how it happens, probably. Yeah, so, the one, so the one that we, we actually just embedded it throughout auger or just treated the, um, the liquid 3D cultures with it. So the one I've worked with before is called tarolithicolic acid. Um, and that is actually a bile acid. So in your gut, we make 12 primary and secondary bile acids. Uh, bacteria are capable of modifying them. And generally, after you eat food, the bile acids are normally released by your gallbladder at really high concentrations to help solubilize dietary fat. And then they're recycled in the system. Um, so you lose very little of these compounds every day. And they're derived from cholesterol, so they look like steroids, um, except they have different little tails. So you can get tarocolic or glycocolic, and that's all related to the um, what's conjugated to the steroid core itself. But it's really cool because we've known that these molecules have existed for a long time, but I think, you know, as more screening tools come out, this is one of those, like, new tricks for an old dog type of a situation um, because that com these compounds are capable of dispersing biofilms in from both Vibrio cholera and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which are two really prevalent gram-negative pathogens. So that's at least what one of them looks like. Okay. So when you say it's agar, I mean, again, like if I'm, if I'm picturing like a substrate and then a biofilm sitting on top of it, like how is the agar interacting with the biofilm? Is it floating yeah. by it and so for these chemicals that go into the biofilm? Like, Yeah. So for these solid agar-based assays, we actually just make the agar and then mix our biofilm inhibitor throughout it. So the bacteria is growing on top of it. So it'd be exposed with it just on the surface. Uh, because biofilms actually exist at a lot of different interfaces. So you can have, you know, it's like the plaque on your teeth are a biofilm. Um, the, the stuff that grows in your shower, if you don't clean it frequently enough, is a biofilm. Um, but then there's also biofilms in liquid. Um, so they, like, tend to exist at interfaces. So, like, in a hospital setting, they're really, people really worry about them for things like catheters or implanted devices because it's a solid surface for these things to grow and accumulate on. So like you can have, you can have like a air liquid, like a surface air, um, liquid, liquid, like they grow at these kind of weird interfaces. So we were kind of interested in studying. Um, so we have studied them in all of the settings, but the ones that we did where we measured the chemistry, that was the biofilm inhibitor was just embedded throughout the auger and then we grew the colony on top. So it's how does it actually inter interact at that interface? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. But we've treated them in um, liquid culture so in the same surprised thing. that the... Okay, I got you. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so you treated these uh, particular biofilms and they got more virulent 
I guess they were trying to adapt and uh, avoid the uh, the biofilm inhibitor. Let me do yes. Did the biofilm inhibitor just inhibit them forming a biofilm or did actively try to kill the bacteria themselves? Yeah, so most biofilm inhibitors shouldn't kill the bacteria. It should just disperse the biofilm. Otherwise, it's an antibiotic. And the thought is that these biofilm inhibitors should have less selective pressure. So like if you're not dead, you shouldn't be you know encouraged to mutate, which is how we've gotten all this antibiotic resistance. Um, so yeah, we think it's an evasion process because we know that these things inhibit formation and induced dispersion. But yeah, we think it's something about, since this is a host metabolite, that maybe it ha- does have something to do with sensing. Uh, because there was a really cool paper in 2014, I think it was, where they found that like CF patients, uh, cystic fibrosis patients, um, tend to you know, be largely colonized uh, sometimes by Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And that when they thump up mucus out of the lungs, oftentimes you have uh, kind of like an acid reflux situation. So it is feasible that Pseudomonas aeruginosa could encounter these bile acids um, in a host setting like during those instances with CF patients. So like that could be one of the things that they use well, to sense their environment. Well, what's to imply this inhibitor? What, so what, how does the behavior specifically change or the biofilm? Does it break off and then go form somewhere else? Or what, what is it? Uh, so what we know is that, you know, when we treat these things, they go back into their free floating state. Um, and at that point, then the thought would be that you'd want to treat them with a normal antibiotic. Like would be a like the next logical thing to test, so that you envision like a co-dosing. So get rid of biofilms and then kill them with something like an antibiotic. Who would you get to the biofilms? What is the risk to the host? Would it be more deadly, or what would happen to the host? Yeah. So what we think now is that um, the host. So since we now know that the bacterium becomes more virulent, we actually think this could have real serious implications for the host. So we've actually um, probably won't be studying this set of compounds anymore because we, like, I don't think there's any way to mitigate the fact that we've made the bacteria more virulent to a host. Specifically, what, what makes the uh, biofilm or the bacteria worse for the host? Is it that now that they're dispersed, um, they're, they form many little biofilms versus one or a few, you know, one or two big ones? Or, I mean, what's what's worse about the nature of them? Like when you say they're more virulent, what do you mean? Are they yeah. even in their loose form, they're worse off than the host? Or more yeah. So even though they're all dispersed, they're killing the host faster. And so I think um, we have not yet studied like what exactly they turn on in response to this. So something we could do is look at the, um, you know, what's happening at the genetic level. Like have they turned on other machinery uh, but we haven't done that yet. We're not sure. But all we know is that we've treated a hun- like hundreds of wax moths, which are a great model system for this, uh, and they all consistently die faster. Um, statistically, like every time we do this, they're just dying way faster. Because, um, you know, they only live for 20 hours and they're dying at like 15. So, you know, it's a significant reduction of the lifespan if you only live 20 hours, but you've like lost a quarter of it. When they're dead, are you cutting them open and looking at the condition of the biofilms inside them or the bacteria inside them? Uh, we haven't. Uh, so our collaborators actually at the University of Birmingham in England do that. So I guess they could try to ship us a bunch of dead worms, um, or we're going to have to figure out how to do that here in Chicago. Well, I think that would be a good thing to do maybe because it would tell you, all right, well, they're dead sooner, but 
you know, what did the bacteria do? And maybe look at the bacteria and sequence them and see what's changed and et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something we could do. It's just, um, it's like, so we're not the first people to report this. There've been a handful of other papers that suggest that treating biofilms um, can lead to this kind of negative side effect. So I think for us, the moral of the story really was, this is something people should be checking as part of the development process. So it's not just get rid of biofilms, everything's going to be fine. It's get rid of them and make sure you, you haven't actually made it worse. Like, I, I think it's like well, just a yeah. good thing to consider in the development pipeline now. Right. I mean, maybe the thing is to treat with antibiotic at the same time that you're doing the biofilm disbursement or shortly before or maybe shortly after. I mean, but what is it that you're trying to figure out? You know, so far you've figured out at least for these compounds, the results worse than this creature, but you know, where do you take it from here? Yeah. So I think for us, this has been a nice proof of principle to show that the chemistry is informative. And so what we'd like to actually do now um, is we're going to move back into Vibrio cholera and we're going to try to put it in zebrafish. And then actually, so those are models that we actually have here in Chicago. Um, so we'd like to, you know, infect hosts and then actually check on it in the host. So we, we are proposing to do what you've suggested just in a slightly different set of um, organisms. So the host we'd like to use is zebrafish. So it's actually a vertebrate model, whereas, you know, a wax moth is an important, um, you know, research animal, but it's uh, a little bit far off from a person. Whereas at least a zebrafish, right. um, they naturally interact with cholera in the environment. Um, and there was a paper in 2014 that proposed out of Wayne State that proposed that they're actually maybe one of the animal reservoirs for cholera in the environment. So zebrafish, you know, do live in the or in or around the Indian Ocean. Um, and so they actually could encounter cholera and cholera colonizes their guts, which it does in a, you know, in people. Uh, and fish actually also get diarrheal disease, just like people do. So it's actually a really cool model for studying cholera. That's the closest to like the yeah, human disease. Yeah. Is there anyone you know that's studying, you know, in, uh, in people or in, in animals or mammals, you know, what it looks like, let's say inside the gut, the biofilms that are created there. And what does that interface look like between our cells and, you know, bacterial cells? Yeah. So we do have someone um, that is going to send us hopefully very soon some, um, I think it's either mouse or rabbit uh, intestines that have been colonized for us to be able to get a look at that. Uh, but I don't know if anybody's, it, you know, it's pretty hard to come by um, samples like this from a person because that probably means it didn't end well for the person. But um, yeah, we're hope we would like to move more into this interface now that we think the chemistry is actually telling us something uh, to move into these more complex model systems to take a much deeper dive on what it looks like from the chemistry. Yeah, standpoint. I would think, that, right. I would think that, that it would be critical to know all you can about biofilms and their formation, their structure and, yeah. and all that, and the roles that the different constituent uh, bacteria play within a biofilm as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that's the most, you know, the best way to design a treatment is to fully understand what you're dealing with. You know, you know, what might be interesting is if you had a large biofilm, if you just treated one end of it with these compounds and see if the behavior ran throughout the whole biofilm, like, are you treating the entire thing or, or just one part of it? Yeah, we've treated the, we've kind of done both. So we've, we ended up treating the whole thing, but I have done that experiment where I spotted one, the compound on one end and then did kind of like a long streak across the plate. Um, and that experiment 
it kind of worked, but I think it ended up just creating like a really local environment. Um, so our limit of our spatial limit for bacteria on auger is 500 microns. Uh, so I think it was happening, like whatever the was happening at the interface, I was really not able to measure, nor do I think it was really like a signal transduction thing down the whole line. Like it was just really localized to wherever I put the compound at the start of the um, colony. Oh, you mean the rest of the biofilm? It didn't really do there, anything to the rest of it. Yeah. That, oh, okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. So they really kind of, oh. the whole thing kind of needs to get treated, not just a part of it. Well, maybe, I mean, I guess, you know, also the bacteria were in sequence, like you said, if their genes changed, I wonder if you sequence the ones at the affected end versus the ones at the not affected end, I guess from what you've seen so far, you'd expect the yeah, ones at the, the, the distal end to be unaffected, but maybe they would be, I don't know. Yeah. I think they probably would be. Yeah. But uh, we're not, we don't really do any genomics stuff. We're a lab full of chemists. So we need collaborators for that. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So, all right. What, what's, um, so your next thing is uh, zebrafish. You want to repeat these experiments in exactly or do something different? Yeah, we would like to, we, the goal in the lab right now is to really work at building in complexity um, with either microbial communities or actually trying to do this all in a host setting. Because I think, you know, what we know occurs in a Petri dish, but like, does that occur in a host? You right. know, I don't think anybody can answer that question well. Um, so, yeah, that's what we'd like to build to and we're actively working on right now. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, very good. What, what's the best way for people to learn more and to watch your progress and keep tabs and ask questions? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, anybody can send me an email or we have a lab website. It's sanchezlab.science. Um, and we've also made some videos because we study cheese. So one of our papers, we had a, we did an author summary video, um, but we do try to post um, kinds of different videos to the website. So we had one, we also work on ovarian cancer. So we kind of posted a, like how we do this method video to the website. Um, or I tweet a lot. So at Dr. Laura Sanchez, I'm very active. Um, yeah. Well, actually, since you brought it up, if you don't mind, uh, sure. cheese, what are you studying there? Yeah. So it turns out cheese rinds. So like fancy cheeses, not like craft singles, um, are actually gigantic biofilms. <laughs> yeah. So well, craft singles, I don't craft singles is like some kind of man-made anyway. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah I think that's real cheese. cheese. What, what is it? It's cheese product. And I don't, that's not, I don't know what that is, but, um, we, yeah, we study, um, how bacteria form and age over time on cheese rinds. So the cheese rind itself is actually a big, beautiful biofilm, but it's edible. Um, so it's a growing consortium of bacteria and fungi. Uh, and it's cool because we can actually grow these microbes on solid cheese curd auger. So we can recapitulate their, you know, man-made native environment. Um, and it's cool because the bacteria and fungi on cheeses are really stable and similar worldwide. So our collaborators, Rachel Dutton and Ben Wolf, uh, worked really hard to document this in their cell paper in 2014. Um, and we're doing kind of all the chemistry. So we're looking to see and use this really simplified model system to know if there are, you know, keystone microbial species that are important for how things grow and age over time, um, or are there conserved chemical processes or processes that are related to this growth and aging over time. 
because basically what they know is a cheese that is grown in Vermont from a microbial standpoint looks a lot like a cheese grown in France if it's the same kind of cheese. Like if it's all a natural blue rind cheese from the outside, they look pretty similar. And we don't know Does why that mean they is. Have the, do they have the same bacteria or you'd expect yeah. different bacteria? It's the same bacteria and fungi at the genre level. So not like there are going to be subspecies differences, but, you know, from a global standpoint, they're really covered in the same kinds of things, which is cool because they're oh, actually not a... inoculated that way. So they just get there and we don't know why or how. You mean the, the, the quote unquote right kind of bacteria get there, but you don't know how they get there? Correct. So like the, um, you know, the really washed, stinky, smelly rind cheese that are like kind of soft and smell like feet. Well, I avoid those, but yeah. Okay. But you know what I'm talking about. Okay. So those ones actually end up during their aging process, they're washed with a brine solution that's supposed to be sterile. And at the end of their aging process, they end up covered in what I'd like to call ocean bacteria. So you find Pseudomonas, Cycrobacter, Halomonas, and Vibrios. And all of those genre you tend to find in the ocean. So it's like they're being treated with a sterile brine solution. And, you know, over a two-month aging period, they're covered in what looks like ocean bacteria. So is it just that these ocean bacteria found a salty environment? Are they coming in on the salt? Like, how do they know, you know, they thrive there and we don't know how they get there. It's, I, I think it's just fascinating. Like, because we don't really know how bacteria get certain places. Yeah, no, that's true. Like, where do they come from, right? I, I went to, uh, years ago in San Francisco, like the Boudin Bakery. They talked about, like, the mother dough yeast they've had for, like, a hundred something years. But Yeah. But they also said, like, you can make bread by taking the dough and just putting it on your porch outside. And the right, letting it just pick up the air. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's at least through the air. But, yeah, it's weird. Like, where do these things come from? And um, also, too, e- even if they're kind of in the, well... I guess if they're not in the area, they're not going to get to where the, uh, the intended target is. But hmm. Yeah, I think it's like the way I think about the cheese system is, you know, these different wheels of cheese are these gigantic self-selecting auger plates. But the other thing we know about it is the bacteria and fungi, like we all know how they end, but they also have trends as they age. So like why do certain species start and then another one succeeds? Like how do they know how this whole process, like, how do they know to do this? You know, it's like, like one gets a, the cheese rind ready and then another one comes in by the end of the two month period. And like, that's what you always end up measuring. So well, I think from a chemistry standpoint, this is all essentially food sources for these creatures. And so as the chemistry changes, you know, the, it's, it's palatable to species A, but then maybe no longer over time. And then it becomes more palatable to species B. So that takes over. Yeah. Yeah. We do know there's one, uh, interaction where the cheese, like a natural rind cheese, starts out uh, covered with different kinds of staphylococcal species, and they're important for actually raising the pH. So the pH of cheese starts out at like four, um, and then over time neutralizes. Uh, and so you can replicate this, and then the bacterium that comes in second is a Brevibacterium, um, and it doesn't grow the same if you artificially just raise the pH but it will grow. Um, but when the staff is there, you get this like really deep pigmentation, which is important, you know, for taste and flavor. Um, but we also know that it looks like the brevibacterium, you know, might be secreting some sort of an antibiotic towards the staff, but we're like still working on all that. So I, I think there is like 
you're right. It's both like the, you know, the non-living food factor, but also like how much are they actually the species interacting with one another, I think is still an open-ended question. Yeah. I mean, is there anyone looking at that bacteria to bacteria interactions? Uh, that's what we do on cheese. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. So like the, the example you gave, what happens when the, you know, the, the second strain comes in or the second species comes in? Yeah. So it looks like it produces a large antimicrobial peptide. Um, although we're having, we're kind of now at the point of like, okay, we think this is happening, but what is it? So we're trying to identify the structure of that compound. So to really nail so down, what is this chemical that is being produced? So maybe the, the staff are in there, they're eating, they're raising the pH, and now that gives an opening for these new bacteria to come in, and they don't like who's there, so they, they make antimicrobial peptides and things to kick them out so they can take over. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and that's just one example of what we know happens. But I think there are a lot more that we haven't gotten to yet. So like another one, um, we know that a different kind of bacteria, so like a glutamosibacter ends up secreting more metallophores in the presence of a fungal species that grows on cheese. And metallophores are like siderophores, but siderophores are specific for, they're specific compounds that chelate iron from the environment. So like siderophores, like that's a, I don't know, a Latin word. Um, but the metallophore we found actually chelate zinc out of the environment. Um, and you get upregulation of this when the two are next to each other, because we're, we think they're actually fighting it out for trace metals to survive on the cheese surface. But like they turn, the, they turn the cheese pink over time. So it's, you know, it, it's, yeah, it makes sense, but it's like kind of cool that, you know, these are the things that you end up eating. And is it good or bad to be eating them if we know all this chemistry is occurring? Well, I realize that everything we eat is worked on by bacteria or fungi or yeast, everything, whether it's before we eat it or after yeah. we eat it. So yes. there's nothing we encounter that hasn't been worked on by something. Yes, that's true. But what we do know uh, in a study from Peter Turnbaugh's lab in 2014 is that the fermented food microbes, especially those associated with cheese, uh, don't die in your gut. So they put people on these meat and cheese diets for a week. And after four days, you get viable fermented food microbes at the end of the microbiome study, uh, which means you can get culturable bacteria out of fecal matter. So if you're eating these things and they're not dying in your gut, how long do they stay there and what are they doing? Well, I recently read an article about auto brewer syndrome, I guess like. Oh yeah, you can like make yourself drunk. Well, after antibiotics, they build up these yeasts in their intestines and yeah. the yeast can ferment carbohydrates and sugars and make alcohol. So some of these people were arrested for like DUI and they hadn't been drinking because their, their body's creating the alcohol. These poor people, some of them, like they got so drunk from eating the wrong foods that they were like in danger, you know, they could have yeah. died from alcohol poisoning. Totally. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, you know, fascinating to think Americans don't really have, I would say on the whole, our diets tend to not encompass fermented foods. But if you look at other cultures, you know, the intake of kimchi and um, sauerkraut cheese, meat, like all of those are fermented foods that have live cultures on them. Um, and, you know, I think they're generally the Western diet, I think is thought to be not so great for you. So, you know, maybe we should be eating more fermented foods. So I don't think we know, we're at the point. I don't know if we know, is it good or bad? We all like the taste, but you know, what's really going on. I think we haven't like, that's like kind of the next direction for microbiome science, in my opinion. There seems to be a ton of anecdotal stories that fermented foods, uh, you know, are beneficial for health. 
Yeah. So I know there's not scientific studies, but again, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, very good. Uh, I mean, it's, you're into some really fascinating stuff and I'm sure when you, uh, when you go home and you look at the foods you're about to eat, you, you probably, you know, maybe do a double take and think about them differently now. Yeah. I mean, I definitely still eat cheese. Like this has not deterred me at all from eating it. Um, and if anything, now I feel like when I go to the store, it's like kind of fun to think about, you know, what species really make up all the colors and the shapes of the rinds that you see. Cause those are just big edible biofilms. Yeah. I mean, weird. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, yeah. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a really great conversation. Very interesting. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.